Welcome back to The Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner at OpenView. We're here to help software founders and operators identify and unpack sustainable growth strategies in the ever-changing world of SaaS. Today, we hear from David Cancel, co-founder and CEO of Drift. You're probably familiar with David from his reputation as a product visionary and a serial founder. But what you may not know about David is that he's a voracious reader. In fact, despite all of the challenges of running a hypergrowth startup in the middle of a pandemic, he still managed to read more than 50 books in 2020. In today's episode of Build, we unpack how David approaches reading as a busy founder, his top five book recommendations from 2020, and a deep dive into the book No Rules Rules about Netflix's famous culture and how it's influenced Drift's own company culture. All that and more on this episode of Build. So let's dive in with David Cancel. Well, hey, David, thanks for joining us here today on the Build podcast. It's great to have you on the show. I'm excited to be on, Blake. I love this podcast. We're going to talk today about one of your favorite topics, which I know from following you on social media, uh, and I'm sure many others do as well, but you're an avid reader. And so we're going to dive into some of your favorite books today. I'm excited. I can talk books forever. So I'm excited to, to finally have a podcast dedicated to books. So how many books did you read last year? It, it was almost impossible to count because I, I read over so many different formats, digital, audio, and of course, hardcover books and paperbacks. So I'm estimating, which is not accurate, somewhere between 50 and uh, 65 books. Oh, wow. And is that pretty typical in a, in a given year? Or was, was COVID giving you more time to do that? Actually, weirdly enough, I, I found less time to re- read during all this. I think, you know, with all the changes that we've been going through as a business and all of us just in life, there was just so much dedicated to other stuff. I think I've been producing a lot of video, whether it's asynchronous or synchronous video this year, which has consumed a ton of time. But I think I've read less during COVID, unfortunately. So have you always been an avid reader or was there a point kind of in your journey where you decided to become one? I was an avid reader as a kid. And then I think during my school time, it kind of, you know, I would say got beat out of me somehow. And I think my reading went from that focus on reading stuff that I loved to reading stuff that I had to, not knowing why I had to read it and kind of being taught to read it in a kind of linear fashion, reading from the beginning to the end and memorizing everything in between. And that that kind of killed my love for it. And I kind of came back to it probably five or six years into my career. And what was the shift for you? Was it kind of just saying, hey, I'm going to read what I want to read and read in a different style versus kind of what everybody says I'm supposed to, or what kind of unlocked it for you? A few things. I think the thing that got me back to reading was I had started my first company. I was kind of trying to figure it out on my own. And so much of what we take for granted today in podcasts and video and on the internet, you know, was not there, was not accessible. There was no Google uh, commercially. There was no easy way to find information. And so I was tired of failing and making all my mistakes on my own and, and wanted to learn from someone else's mistakes. And so I started to to pick up more and more books and that got me back in. And then I think that the next thing that was super critical was that I started to read, really focused on trying to get one lesson out of the thing that I was reading. And so I, may, I gave myself permission to read a chapter at a time, maybe revisit a book later, put it away if I wasn't interested in it and kind of more uh, go from book to book. 
and sometimes reading several books at the same time. And, and that really reignited my love for, for reading. So it's kind of the foraging or, or sort of an in parallel sort of processing and foraging across multiple different books versus the start to finish serial read one book and then move on to the next. So that, that's a good hack. I like that one. Yeah, I think it's super, it was super important for me. And I think it's super important for kind of the times that we live in now, right? So we've gone from a world where, you know, there was a prize to, and there was value to kind of memorization and uh, remembering facts and reading in a certain way and reading for that to a world that, you know, that that can be found easily and that can be produced by machines. And so like, really our jobs now are more about connecting the dots and then kind of see what I do every day kind of paralleled in the way that I started to read it and noticing that if I read multiple books at once, I could start connecting the dots between the same patterns represented in pretty different ways across those books. So let's jump into some specifics here. Now, you just published a couple of weeks back an article in Inc. Magazine about your top five recommended reads right now. So what are those, those top five books right now? So I'll just run them down and then we can, we can dive into them. So the first one is a timely book. It's a book called Post-Corona. It's called From Crisis to Opportunity. It's by Scott Galloway, who's a professor at NYU and, and has a pretty great podcast. And you can follow him along online. Also an entrepreneur. The second book is No Rules, Rules. And it's Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. And it's written by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer. The third is The Autobiography, Andrew Carnegie and The Gospel of Wealth, both by our Andrew Carnegie. And uh, that was really going back in, in history and revisiting someone that we could learn from. The fourth is Hell Yeah or No, What's Worth Doing by Derek Sievers. And the fifth was revisiting this book called The Dip. And it's a little book that teaches you when to quit and when to stick. And that's by Seth Godin. And how do you decide personally what, what you're going to read next? Or add to the stack of things you're concurrently reading at one time, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm constantly, I'm a kind of a hoarder when it comes to books. So as soon as, one thing that I, I kind of figured out as well is that if someone were to recommend the book, if, I, if someone I trusted recommended a book, I would just buy it immediately. No questions asked, right? I used to really consider and spend a lot of time selecting books. And I was kind of spending too much time doing that. And instead, I just, as soon as someone I trust recommends a book, if I haven't read it, if I find it interesting, I buy it. And I so I always have a stack, stacks and stacks of books laying around surrounding me, which is my dream. And so I kind of peruse along those kind of like in the old days inside a library and select ones that kind of jump out at me. And I think the trap that I was falling into there was spending too much time kind of trying to filter on the front end, really when most of these books are, you know, five to $15. And if I could get one lesson out of a book, $15 would be well spent. I actually learned about another book from you a while back, which was the, the Tao of Charlie Munger. And I just find that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett are just obviously extremely interesting and, and successful individuals, but they both kind of have this philosophy of you should kind of just sit around on your ass and do nothing all day. <laughs> They're just sitting around reading. They're not sitting around in meetings and doing email all day. They're like reading the paper. They're reading everything they get their hands on. They're reading, you know, all of the public materials from every company that they can find. They're reading every book that they can imagine. And what do you know that turns into uh, making better decisions uh, versus just being busy, busy, busy back to back all day. And so you're kind of describing something similar of being surrounded by books, sort of finding what you can find in one versus the other 
And that really being sort of in itself, it can be something that unlocks productivity, even though you're not kind of quote unquote working in the moment. Yeah, I think that's a super important topic you bring up. And I think that was one of the biggest things that kind of I learned during most of this pandemic, we're still in it, but most of this pandemic was that, as I said, I started to read less, but I started to give myself more time just to synthesize, just as they would say to sit around on their butts. But for me, it was was doing something active. It was walking, it was doing something and just not focus on trying to be productive, just trying to focus on synthesis. What I came away from that thinking was that, wait, I don't, I was spent so many years of my life kind of chasing productivity and, but I don't want to be more productive. I don't want to squeeze more things into a single day. I don't want another hack for a to-do list. I don't want, you know, to become the most productive person of every minute. What I want to do is to have the highest impact. And what I want to do is to find this, the few high leverage bets that I can make. And of course, most of them will fail, but like high leverage bets that I can make, spend all my time on that. And so I think that's parallel to a lot of the things we hear from Munger and Buffett, even though I had read that and many, many times, it wasn't until being forced into the situation during the pandemic that I started to live it. So diving into one of the specific books on your recommendation list. So No Rules Rules, and this is about Netflix and Netflix's culture. So I want to dive into this one. So maybe first question, uh, we talked about it at the high level kind of in in general, but for for this book specifically, why did you decide to read this one? The easy answer is that it just came out. So it was something that they just published recently. But it's also a story that I've been following for a very, very long time and a very long time. Back at my time at, at HubSpot, I got to know the head of people back then who was helping us out, Patty McCord at Netflix. And so I had heard all these stories about the culture inside of Netflix, and we were trying to learn from her. And this was right around the time that Reed Hastings published his culture deck, which has become like famous or infamous or both at this point. And it was kind of the basis of a culture deck that we created at HubSpot, that Dharmesh created back at HubSpot that has been key for them. And so I was remembering those memories and and I had spent more time with Patty McCord uh, during my time at Drift in the early days, again, trying to dive into culture. And as this book was being published, I was reflecting on the culture that we have created so far at Drift and, and how that's changed from the early days to today as we scale the company and what may be missing or what we may need to go back to from the early days and what we may need to change going forward. And so it was just the right book at the right time for something that I had been thinking about. Yeah. And I know that culture deck, you know, it's the the 125 page plus (laughs) deck that is the worst design deck. I think anybody's ever seen the original one. And yeah, it just goes to show that design versus content, sometimes content, you know, is, is what matters. And, it, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I know, Cheryl Stanberg said that she thinks that's one of the most important documents that's ever come out of Silicon Valley. And so mm-hmm. the way that people have sort of loved that thing on SlideShare and, other, and everywhere else is, is impressive. And I certainly have as well. And so getting some of the more color and the stories behind it through the, through the book is, has been awesome. So mm-hmm. the book points to and kind of distills um, some of that that culture deck and some of those ideas down into four main principles. What are those four principles? So the principles that he focuses on are removing controls, radical candor, the global implications of culture, and I may have missed one, one on uh, transparency. 
And there's also one that they point to around uh, talent density as oh, well. Sorry, talent density. You're right. You missed that. Yeah. And I think that they're all really interesting in the sense that they kind of stand alone. But as I was going through the book again, and as I was kind of thinking and prepping for our conversation today, it's realizing that they all sort of reinforce one another as well. And so it's pretty cool. And so I guess maybe unpacking each of those. So in talent density, what was the gist of that? And, and kind of how do you think about talent density after reading? Yeah, again, remember my frame, and it's important everyone has their own frame, right? So that's your current context. And my current context was thinking about, all right, what can we learn from this for my own company? And what was different in the beginning versus now? And so I think it's an important thing as you think about scaling your company. I would say in the early days, my company was closer, was more akin to a Netflix slash Amazon type culture. And, you know, pretty high velocity, pretty sharp elbow, pretty really focus on learning and performance. And then I'd say, you know, over time, I'd say in the last year or two, we've come closer to the other end of the spectrum, more Google or more HubSpot-like culture. And so I was trying to, to figure out, are we going in the right direction? Do we need to stay true to, to what, what we were in the beginning? And, and one of the most important things that Reed talks about in the book is this talent density thing. And this was kind of the core of how we thought about things at Drift in the early days, still think about it these days. And it was really about surrounding yourself by the most exceptional people you can. And I think Charlie Munger, to go back to that reference, talks about this a lot about that you will become kind of the average of the people that you surround yourself with. And I think that's been one of the most important life lessons and business lessons that I've ever learned. And, you know, it's something that we all roll our eyes on at some point because we've heard it so much, but many of us never remember to live it. And so talent density is really you have to find the best of the best of the best, and that will breed, you know, success breeds success. And one of the things that Reed talked about in the original culture deck and then later in the book that, that really scared people was this idea that if you were a really good performer, that that would get you a severance check and there wouldn't be time for you at Netflix and that they only wanted the greats, the best of the best, right? And how they thought about this idea of keepers and who they absolutely needed to keep. And I think, you know, in the book, he talks about how they they didn't always have that clarity around this. And it was really when they had to lay off a third of their company that really forced them to think about this. And one thing that they observed was, even though that was a very painful decision for them, that, that it became a happier, more productive place post that layoff than it was before. Yeah, it was an interesting story that they, I think that was kind of during the initial dot-com bubble burst. Yeah. Because of that, understandably, they had to kind of go into what they viewed as being, you know, hibernation mode, you know, sort of let's do the riff, let's do everything, maybe some things that some people did, you know, in 2020 due to COVID. And they kind of thought, well, hopefully we can survive this. And then exactly as you mentioned, something unexpected happened that was positive and that with fewer people and after sort of a big round of layoffs, everybody got more productive and they started doing more. And it was kind of uh, undergirding this idea of, you know, f- you know, average performers versus superstar performers and, you know, fewer, better people can, can really sort of get to, to better answers and better results. So, so it was an interesting story, an interesting example. How has that influenced the idea of, of talent density? You mentioned a little bit of it, how, you know, culture and, and past organizations you've been a part of and then at Drift has evolved. How has this idea of talent density influenced you as a CEO? Well, it's one that in the early days, you know, you go through these stages and and in each stage you have a different context. But from the early days, we would think about this and spend a lot of time really 
being super selective and being on who we hired. And we, myself, my co-founder, Elias, would interview every single person that would join the company. That's changed over time. We're over 400 people now. We interview almost every person here. But I think as I read this, it reminded me that we needed to go go back to that because we've gotten... You know, we've gotten closer to what most companies do, which is to really focus on hiring at scale and really you lose some of that that ability to hire only the best and a focus on only the best when you start to focus on just filling job roles that you have, filling needs that you have as you need to scale. And as you know, we learned in the story in Netflix, you can be more productive with fewer people. And so that's something that I'm trying to instill in the leaders in the hiring leaders here at Drift to really focus on this idea of hiring the best and, and always looking at their team and trying to figure out how we can all be involved in the hiring process and make sure that we keep this culture of excellence going. Yeah. And talent density then moves into the next big principle that they pointed to in the book, which is removing controls. Mm. And you know, they dovetail together because you know if you're hiring superstar people Chances are superstar people want the freedom and the ability to run and to be creative. They want sort of autonomy and authority and decision-making power and all of those things, not micromanagement. And, and so they started to, to realize this, that instead of managing through controls and managing through rules and policies and all of these different things and trying to sort of modify people's behavior, actually, if you remove a lot of that stuff, it ends up leading to better results. And so what would you kind of take away from that? And you know, what are your thoughts on this idea of removing controls? Yeah, I'd say this is one that I've struggled with the actual implementations. But, you know, I think that just for me was that, you know, the idea here was that we're all adults. And so we shouldn't have as many processes and policies in place in order to be successful. And I think, you know, the, the most important kind of three words in the deck for me was this idea of freedom and responsibility, which is how he describes this. And back probably for the last over a decade now, I've I've said something pretty similar, which is autonomy and accountability. And my version of it, which is similar, was that everyone always wants more autonomy, right? They want more and more autonomy in, in deciding the things that they work on, the priority, how they do it. But, you know, they often forget that there has, it has to be almost like a perfect balance. It has to be like a seesaw and that on the other end of autonomy is accountability. And with you need those two things working together. And as they say in Netflix, it's freedom and responsibility. And often people will forget about the responsibility or the accountability piece and just want the freedom, aka the autonomy. But I, the way I would say is that autonomy without accountability is just anarchy. That isn't a system. You need both to kind of balance, balance themselves out. And so, you know, they have examples in here of how they developed this uh, vacation policy where you didn't have to track days and you had unlimited vacations. And we implemented that at HubSpot as well. And that was successful there, but we implemented it at Drift in the early days and it wasn't successful for us, right? So we had in the first year or two, we had an unlimited policy, which we went away from. And what we found was that a third of the company had taken over 60 vacation days per year. But the hardest part about that was that no one... They, we weren't doing a good job. Ultimately, it was a management issue, but it, like nobody knew when these when people were gone. They were gone for you know projects were stalled, and and it really wasn't working for us. And we couldn't figure out like why it had worked in the past at the past company, but not here. And so we went to standard policy. And then this year in 2021, we are rolling. We are going back to an unlimited policy. 
But, you know, I found the book so valuable because in the book, he actually describes exactly why it can go wrong, exactly what to do in order to implement it. And back in the day, we only had the deck to go from, right? And we didn't know, like, there were a whole bunch of cascading things and how you had to manage the teams. And you also had to have the responsibilities within the managers of those teams to be able to set their own smaller, you know, uh, policies within their team of how this could work or not within their group. And those were things that at least at Drift in the early days, we didn't implement. Uh, We just set unlimited vacation policy and we never trained, never managed, never did anything to make that successful. And so now we've learned that in, in the book, I think can help people who are making that transition. Yeah, that idea of freedom and responsibility or autonomy and accountability is super important. A lot easier said than done (laughs) to find the balance between those two things. But I think, you know, a lot of people kind of have more of a a natural orientation towards one versus the other. And Mm -hmm. exactly kind of as the book points to and what we're talking about here is that, you know, there's a a happy medium and a balance of, of both. Again, not easy to, to determine that balance, but it is a balance nonetheless. So that's talent density and then removing controls. So hire the best people you can find, fewer, better people, then remove controls, give them the freedom to run, but still have this idea of accountability or responsibility. And then the, the next piece is radical candor, you know, all about communication and feedback and, and those kinds of things. So, you know, what was the gist of this one in the book and in the culture deck? I love this one. So by the way, there is a book called Radical Candor, which is another great book that I would recommend, but but we'll stick to the five here. But this section stresses transparency and always assuming best intent. We've been pretty big on this at Drift from day one. And we insist that people show their work because no one should be working in a silo. And this we believe that this allows for quick and efficient feedback. So like You know, for us, we started this as kind of an engineering practice years ago where we would always kind of gear the teams around rituals that would put them in a place where they would have to share their work with the rest of the company. And the more we did that, the more autonomy that they got. So the more accountability we had, which is showing our work, the more autonomy we got. And so that was a tool that we were using within the team. But, you know, also this doesn't mean, you know, you always have to accept someone's radical candor. So one of our leadership principles at Drift is this idea of seek feedback, but not consensus. So we ask for feedback, we receive it, and we always assume this idea of best intent. But ultimately, you can't have, you know, 400 plus people directing what you do. So you need to be able to internalize that and take that and assume everyone's giving you the best intent. But, you know, it doesn't mean that everyone will, will be able to direct what you're doing. But I think there were some really great stories in the book around this kind of idea of of radical candor, which again, Patty McCord, who used to run people at Netflix, talks a lot about. And I would, you know, I would recommend everyone check out some of her YouTube talks and podcasts on the topic. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when people talk about transparent communication, it's focused on the giving of communication and the providing of feedback just as important to have the receiving piece of it. And I know that, that Netflix talks uh, just as much about that. And they, they have two, two core principles there. One is to, I think they call it being appreciative, which meaning you appreciate the fact that it took courage for the person to give you that feedback and you don't respond you know, negatively or reactively or defensively. You sort of, you receive it. But then the next piece is accept or discard. It yeah. is on the receiving 
recipient's onus to decide whether he or she wants to accept the feedback and do something about it or say, thank you very much. I hear where you're coming from, but I'm going to make a different decision. And so that, it again, reinforces the idea of autonomy. <laughs> it is amazing how simple these, you know, four kind of principles are, but how you said in the beginning that they reinforce one another. And if you've ever tried to create similar values, principles, etc., for yourself, for your company, for your group, you'll see how actually difficult this is. And that's probably why this, the deck originally and now the book became so popular in Silicon Valley and around the world. Now, the big thing, and, and to bring up another book, you know, a few years back, a lot of people read, you know, Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Yeah. And obviously, it's a great story and lots of stuff to, to glean from it. But as a leadership lesson, I think some people took the wrong lesson away, which was, all right, well, if it worked for him, it worked for me, I can be a, a jerk. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I can berate people and say it's not good enough yet. And sort of uh, people develop this uh, messiah complex that they're the, the next Steve Jobs. And, and I think, again, that was the obviously the wrong message. And so bringing up this idea of radical candor and transparent feedback and tell people what you think and what you feel all the time, and it's sort of your responsibility to do that. Mm-hmm. How do you have that kind of culture without sort of creating license for people to, to be jerks? Yeah, I think for us, it's been important to have this kind of this next leadership principle that we have, which is this idea of creating a culture of respect and trust. And that we needed that alongside the first leadership principle of seeking feedback, not consensus, to kind of, again, balance things out. And that's really helped us out here, having those two on opposite, you know, on the opposite ends, kind of balancing each other. You know, part of radical candor is feeling, as you said, feeling comfortable saying, I didn't like how you gave that feedback. And there's a great uh, story in the book about that. It's about understanding and asking people, how do they like to receive feedback? How do they best like to work? And really trying to, one of the things that I've leaned into over the years is understanding different personality types and how people communicate. Because what you learn is that so much of the miscommunication, especially around, you know, radical candor like this and transparent feedback is not assuming best intent, but not also understanding the way someone may need to be communicated to. And so it's really important to, to take into account each individual's own desire and own preference for how and own needs for how they need to be communicated to. And when you're giving this feedback, if your intent, of course, is is positive and not just getting uh, something off your chest, which they advise against in the book. Yeah. Yeah. There's a difference between providing radical candor and transparent feedback and just venting <laughs> or getting something off your chest because you're, you're frustrated. It's, it's not the same thing, even though it, people think that it is. So, so that's that's a good point. So that kind of rounds us out on our third and brings us to our fourth big pillar from the book, which was the the global implications of culture. And I know Netflix started to see this as they moved from being a single office to being multi-office and especially international. And so, you know, what were some of the aspects of, of this that stood out to you? I think, you know, the this is an important one that we're just starting to learn at our stage here at Drift, but it, it's probably self-explanatory, but it's it's how the culture needs to shift as you expand globally. So each culture has a different expectation, different norms. It's almost like I w- what I referenced earlier, which is like when you're giving feedback and when you're building teams, you have to consider each person's personality type and how they like to be communicated to, how they need to be communicated to. So that's understanding where they're coming from, their context. And this, this global implication of culture was 
really understanding this at a little bit of a macro scale, understanding how different cultures and different regions that you go into have different expectations, different norms. I think in the book, they talk about at one point giving a talk somewhere and asking questions and that in that culture, that wasn't positive because having a, you know, a free-for-all Q&A because only certain people were comfortable asking questions. Instead, that person suggested that maybe they think about it in a different way and proactively ask different groups within the audience to ask questions. And that helped the person who was speaking, but also the audience kind of participate and understand and kind of meet that culture where they were. And so even it, it, you know now as we expand into the UK, we have to think about things as, as small as, you know, how we tell jokes, you know, British humor versus American humor, and really understanding, understanding the needs of all those groups and ensuring that we're being respectful of those norms. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So rounding it out on Netflix. So one other thing that I know I heard Reed Hastings say recently was that he was dying to get back into the office and that they do have a very much an in-office culture. And so where are you guys on that? Are you dying to get back into the office as well? Have you gone sort of full remote? Are you excited for a hybrid environment one day in the future? You don't know how much energy this has consumed, kind of thinking about this. And it's so funny that you're asking me about this today, because right before we started recording this podcast, I was recording an internal video announcement for the company that we're going to release uh, next week, which is to update everyone on what we're going to do when it comes to making a decision on this or how we go forward. And so what we've told the company so far is that, you know, that we we were going to be remote until uh, June of 2021 and that before that we would make a decision on which way we were going to go. This is not is a funny one for me because, you know, I've had remote companies, I've had hybrid companies and I've had mostly in-office companies. And when we were starting Drift, I made a decision that, we would be an in-office company. And the thing that I wanted to avoid was that I didn't want to have a hybrid company. I had a hybrid company in the past. And what I found was that it was hard for it to be an equitable environment, meaning that people who were, you know, if we had offices and people were having hallway conversations and, you know, having lunch and social gatherings, all these things, and you had remote people as well, they always felt less than second class because they were there was context that they were always missing. No matter how diligent you were about sharing some stuff on, you know, putting stuff back into into chat or you know email or you know your document systems, whatever, they always felt left out. And I didn't like that environment. And that was not only from conversations, but they felt left out from promotions. They felt left out from a cultural standpoint. And I wanted to avoid that, so we started with a very in office culture. From a personality standpoint, you know, I am the happiest person being remote, right? I actually don't love being in office. My partner and, and co-founder loves being in office. And so he gets his energy. He's the extrovert. I'm the introvert. And so, but we, we created this cultural, this culture around offices. And then, you know, a little over 10 months ago now, like everyone else, we went to a fully remote environment. And I think you know, what we learned a lot from that. We learned that there were certain things that we thought were impossible remotely that weren't impossible. And, you know, we hired one of them was that I didn't think I could hire the most senior person or senior type people in the company without ever meeting them, without, you know, having face to face, without, you know, 
just getting to know them in that way. And we hired our CRO, uh, Todd Barnett, back in April of 2020. And we hired him 100% remotely. No one's ever met him. He's never been to one of our offices. He's then so, so far has hired four VPs in the same way who report to him. And we've hired countless other people within the company, probably 100 in the last during during the COVID pandemic, you know, totally remotely. And so that really broke the last thing that really kept me from thinking that we could go fully remote. And so I don't want to announce what we're going to do as a company yet because my company doesn't know. But I think most of us have figured out now that we can do at least in the type to work with most of us in, in SaaS software and tech who, who probably are listening to this. We can do most of our work, if not all of it, remotely. And this is all getting into the, the post-corona period. So that's a mm-hmm. great you know, mm-hmm. time to bring up. Uh, my, my last question for you in closing here is, is mm-hmm. the other book on your list or another book on your list was post-corona. And I haven't read this one, but we're all dying for and hoping for and praying daily for, <laughs> for post-corona to come as, as fast as possible. So what did you take away from that book and what sort of pieces of that book are you most, most hopeful for? Well, if you listen to Scott Kelly's podcast, you'll likely know that, you know, during the last 10 months, he's been talking about and a lot about this kind of life after what COVID, you know, will look like. And so, and I, you know, I think the two of us agree on something fundamental that, you know, the world, as I see it, has suffered this collective trauma. And so, like, we've gone through this massive traumatic uh, event. And if we look back at history and we think about the times in history when we have gone through either locally, you know, or globally through massive traumatic events, they take a long, long time to, to unwind. And so, you know, this is something that I've talked to, to my company about because, you know, there was so much talk about when do we go back? When do we, you know, when do things go back to normal? When can we go back to the office? And my view had been like, well, that world, we've gone through a one-way door, you know, to use a, a Bezos kind of idea, this idea of one-way doors versus two-way doors. We've gone through a door that we can never go back to. That whatever version comes next is not going to be that version because we've suffered this traumatic experience at a global scale. And even if you look back in history and you look at people who have gone through different traumas, whether they're much bigger or smaller or whatever, but even something like here in America, people went through the depression and it was even after coming out of that, even after having money, having endless access to food, those people, that generation was never the same, right? It was hard to unwind that. I think some portion of our of us will, will not go back to this old way, no matter how much things change. But the good news is, and this is what I agree with Scott in this book, is that there's this wealth of opportunity that's coming because... One of the things that I talk to entrepreneurs a lot about is like that what you want to do is to try to find when massive behavior changes happen, usually led by some sort of trend or mega trend as I think about it, and then really think about what opportunities does that open up for you to create a new product, to re-segment your, the markets you go into, to recreate your products because one of the things that's impossible is to get someone to change their behavior. And so like most entrepreneurs will work on ideas and, you know, have this thought that, that it's easy to change behavior. I'm on the other end of like, I think it's impossible, but with something like this pandemic, 
we've had massive behavior change, you know, from everything that we're doing, talking about whether we go back to offices or not to like doing this podcast in the way that we're doing it right now. Like we've had massive behavior change. That means that there's massive opportunities for everyone listening to this to rethink the markets that they're going into, rethink the products that they're creating to really address all of this new need that has emerged from all of this behavior change. I think it makes a lot of sense to me. And it's great because my prior question about, you know, when are you going back into the office? Is it going to be hybrid? Is it going to be remote only? That's mostly what people think about and talk about when it comes to what's the post-COVID world going to look like. It's this very zoomed in, singular sort of thing about the future of work. And it's important. But like you said, everything is is affected by the current uh, global pandemic. And so, you know, whether it's industries or whether it's just, you know, things in your personal life, what are the future of friendships and socializing? What yeah. is the future of entertainment? All of these things are kind of, you know, th- there's a, a ton of change, but also a ton of opportunity for for new innovation and new things and you know, kind of like a new Dotto release of, of Earth <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> in some ways, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Even in our business, like we in our within even different segments, it's totally changed things. I'd say in our, you know, enterprise segment, it's kind of fast forwarded us 10 years, like along the adoption curve, like 10 years have been fast forwarded because all of these companies who thought these enterprise companies, the biggest in the world, who thought they could never sell, never market anything without being in person, without hopping on a plane, without, you know, having in-person events have had to adjust that reality overnight, 100% of them across the world, right? There isn't a company that has. And so some of that will change in the future, but they've all been forced into this, you know, acceptance or this learning that it is possible that they can do things in this way. And that's true for our kids and the way that they're being taught and the way that they're learning now. That's true for friendships, as you say, that's true for dating, that's true for kind of every aspect of our life. And so like everything has been recast. Yeah, where there is disruption, there is also opportunity. I yeah. think that's a, a great and hopeful place for us to, to leave the podcast for now. So thanks for joining us here on the show and, and having a conversation. This has been great, David. Well, thanks for having me, Blake. And uh, I'm excited to, uh, to chat with you anytime, especially about books. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn to join in on the conversation and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we look into the brilliant minds scaling Slack, Notion, Atlassian, and more to discover what it takes to build an awesome product and achieve hypergrowth across every stage of maturity, from seed to IPO and beyond. Now, if you're ready, let's build this together. See you next time here on Build.